Welcome to the Health Tech VC. I'm Dr. Fiona Patharaja and I'm managing partner at Krista Galley Ventures and previously I was a consultant radiologist in the NHS. On this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with ambitious startups, outstanding investors and visionary leaders in the health tech space. Today's guest is Tom Carell, who is a consultant vascular surgeon. In 2012, Tom took the leap outside medicine to start his own company, Sidal Medical, which develops AI-based satellite navigation systems for vascular surgical procedures. SIDAR translates images seen on screens in CT scans into a map that vascular surgeons can use during minimally invasive surgical procedures. SIDAR now employs over 30 people. The company is based just outside Cambridge and also has a small US subsidiary. In this podcast, Tom and I cover a wide range of topics, discussing how he turned a research idea in the NHS into a company and then built it into a business which is now selling in the NHS and overseas, including in the USA. We touch upon FDA approval, the challenges of getting a product to market, fundraising, hiring the right team, and also the vagaries of being older than the average startup founder. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. Please tell us about how you've gone from being a frontline surgeon in the NHS to now being CEO of your own very successful company. So thanks, Rush, Fiona. I think the first thing I'd say was it was somewhat of an accidental journey for me. This came out of a research program that I'd uh, set up in London at Guys and Tommy's and with imaging scientists from King's College London. I've been working really on what was a a big problem in the um, operating rooms at at the time, which is this thing where you're doing image-guided surgery. And our specialty had gone from others where you're seeing everything in rich, full-colour 3D and you're suddenly seeing it in black and white 2D. And how can we do it better? And then we stumbled across kind of discoveries. And then I was effectively being accused of cheating during these procedures because it was much easier for me doing them than for others because I could see what I was doing. Mm. And that was really the catalyst for thinking we need to do something about this. And that led to the whole process. But um, naivety up front, I think, is, is much underestimated as a good thing in terms of you know, the scale of the challenge, taking something from being you know, on the prototype form and research into it out being a commercial product. So before we talk about how you've gone from an idea into actually having a product that you sell, maybe for people who are listening, you could talk a little bit about what is Snyder, what's the product and who actually buys it? Yeah, sure. So in this big switch from open surgery um, to minimally invasive keyhole surgery, huge numbers of procedures, you can't use optical guidance if you're inside a blood vessel or a solid organ or um, your bones, those sorts of things. So the standard way of guiding them is live x-ray imaging, like video x-ray imaging. But for various reasons, one, not wanting to irradiate the patients too much or yourself from the scatter, and also just the nature of x-rays showing up bone and metal work, is you end up sacrificing a huge amount of detail as to what's going on. So what um, you do with these procedures, and it's done all around the world, is that you uh, have a look at a really detailed view of the patient, which comes from a diagnostic CT scan, and you construct a, a kind of plan, a 3D plan in your head as to what you want to do. And then all the way through the operation, you're trying to translate what you're seeing on the screen in terms of these images into what is that, what the real anatomy is. And there's huge you know, discrepancies, as you might imagine, in terms of how well people are able to do this, and then it can turn into real problems uh, with it. So really what we were all about was, what we were about, what we're still about, is taking existing data on the patient that's being produced by the standard types of imaging that you're using for every case, 
and bringing them together and take, doing that, that job of fusing together the 2D and the 3D information and displaying it on a screen in a way that's really intuitive to understand. And then of course, you're having to do that within all of the necessary constraints about it needs to be safe, it needs to be performant, it needs to not give information that's wrong and might lead to harm to the patient. So that's really, it's taking existing data not, and just taking mental workload off the people operating in the operating room, surgeons, the radiologists, allowing them to use their human intelligence for the actual real challenges of these procedures, which the decision-making and all the other uh, bits of information coming in. And so in terms of who is the customer, is it hospitals or insurers? Who's buying this? So really good question. At the moment, it's the hospitals. And it's actually the individual departments. It's, we're a cloud software app, and it's literally just taking the video images being generated by the existing x-ray sets in the operating rooms. And so at this stage, at the moment, the um, sailors to the departments, and it's about making these procedures run uh, more smoothly, faster, reducing the radiation exposure to, those, to the patients and to the people operating in, in the room, and increasingly getting evidence of improved patient outcomes as well with using it. But there is a whole bigger story, which I think you're probably alluding to, which is that through this, you get to see how procedures are planned, how they unfold um, over the course of the procedure and what the technical result looks like and what the the patient outcome is. And there's a really big um, opportunity here, which is around improving predictability and the consistency of patient outcomes, because there is still sadly a really big variation both in the type of treatment you get and certainly in the outcomes between different hospitals, different teams, inside countries and between countries as well. And really a lot of that is to do with not understanding what's going on in in the operating rooms and and the kind of learning and the local experience isn't something which is able to be shared more globally. So there's real potential for a much bigger use case than actually at the moment. Going to backtracking a little bit around, we talked about what it's like to have this great idea, doing some research on it, but moving from that to sort of applying it to the real world, being commercial about it and selling it. Can you talk a little bit about the long, hard journey from idea to clinical trials, to proof of concept to a product? Yeah, absolutely. And it is a long, hard journey. <laughs> so the, the big things are that the... Taking something that works when you've got your team looking at it really hands-on in the, in the operating room and something that works with close um, attention, but it then converting that into a product that somebody can switch on 24-7 and it works and it has the level of reliability of accuracy precision that you need for it is a, is a whole engineering piece uh, in itself. So there was that side to what we were doing. There was also other technical aspects to it, which are the fact that this particular problem of actually being able to match the 2D and 3D uh, data together with enough robustness, to give you an idea, and I think it's over half a million of these fusions that we've done so far, there haven't been any detectable errors to date. But to get it with that level of accuracy requires really high-performance computing, and you Mm. can't realistically deliver that in an operating room in a hospital you need to get that out to the data centers out to the cloud and then there are there's then the next whole level on top of it in terms of how you do that in a way that is compliant with geographical jurisdictions and is you know acceptable to the to the customers and then on top of that you then have the next layer which is building the business model as to how do you get people to pay for it and how do you as a company make a profit from it as well 
So they're just, it's just level upon level. And it's, it's a temptation when you go into it, thinking that actually the bit that you're dealing with, which is really tricky and difficult in itself, which is mm. the technical bit of it, is the you know, biggest challenge around that all the other stuff is, is straightforward. And it's not, you know, you've got to puzzle that through and, and figure it out as, uh, as well. And you need a, a diverse group of people uh, to do that. So when, how did you actually then go from being in a hospital with an idea in a research group to then saying, actually, we're going to now run clinical trials on it and now we're going to move into a proof of concept? What's that journey been like? The first thing we did was we went around and we, you know, having filed the, um, filed the IP, we went around and spoke to the existing imaging companies out there. Uh, and essentially, though, they're going, actually, we have a mechanical system that costs only a few million pounds and you can do a kind of a similar thing with it. And so you, you then realize that actually this, there isn't an easy path to this. This is something that is going to require effectively creating a new type of company. There is no other company in the world streaming you know, live images out of operating rooms, doing AI with it and returning those insights into operating rooms. We obviously had a complicated position in that I was an employee in the NHS. Graham, my uh, co-founder, was an employee of King's College London at the university. Mm. So you're talking to the various tech transfer departments of them yeah. and then go out and get seed funding. And there's this wonderful situation where you're going out and pitching to the angel investment community to go and develop a prototype and to prove de-risk the really big things there in the invention. So yeah, is it actually technically possible to, to do this? Uh, and then, yeah, it's very much that story from then on, car milestone by milestone, then have built the prototype, then do the clinical trial to prove that you can do it with the necessary safety and performance that you need for regulatory clearance, then get the regulatory clearance, then build an operational system. Yeah, so it was very much kind of one thing after another and almost like checking off you know, a list of risks from the investor perspective on things, from kind of the biggest risk that if we can't do this, then there's no future to it. Uh, and then just working your way down uh, down the list of those. Um, and at what stage in that journey were you very convinced this is going to work and I'm going to leave medicine to commit myself to this? Uh, yeah, so um, so it would, would be uh, late 2013. So I've been doing it kind of part-time up until then. Actually, it started in 2014. I announced I was going to take a year's sabbatical to do it. And I asked my colleagues at the hospital, it's fine, I'll be back in 12 months' time, thinking to myself, it'll probably take about 10 months and I might get a couple of months' holiday out of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, just wildly, it's that thing that you don't know what you don't know. And that actually, the, yeah, as I said, those first bits of it that seem like this huge hurdle, so building the prototype, setting up that clinical trial, getting that up and running, which we did, in, you know, did over that course, that 12 months, that then just opens up this big next front frontier, which is the CE marking, FDA clearance, your first customers, and then all of this business around actually converting something which is something that works you know, in what the hospital at one time into something that works 24-7, is fully automated, totally robust, all the operational support behind it. And then you also have your eyes opened to all the possibilities, actually huge opportunities that you have with it. And then, you know, for me, it was... A decision then, which is, you know, where can I have the most impact on things? Mm. I could go back, be a surgeon, I could do another few thousand operations, or I could do this, and you see no one else doing it, and you think, actually, I think this has got the biggest impact by far. Yeah. And if we don't do it, then, you know, it might be a decade or more before someone else does it. 
I think that journey is incredible. And you mentioned before, Graham, your co-founder, and often people underestimate the value of a co-founder. And you, know, if you've got a good egg, how do you sort of keep and nurture that relationship? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you and Graham and your relationship and how you might have very different outlooks and skill sets. You obviously need to uh, get on, and but the difference is being able to look at problems from different perspectives. For us, it was also this, Graham's a physicist by background, an imaging scientist, myself as a surgeon. I'd always had a slightly geeky interest in physics, and he'd obviously done a lot of work in medical imaging. Mm. So we have enough kind of common language that we could always unpick the problem and be uh, confident that we're talking about the same sorts of things. And figuring it out from there, there'd be th some things from the engineering perspective that he would think, you know, he would assume was really important from a a surgical perspective and isn't important and vice versa and it's a really wonderful experience just getting uh, your teeth in as a group into a difficult problem and then you bring in other people who have different skills here you know, when we started up you know, chief finance officer brought in all sorts of skills around you know what what's required to set up a company just everything from basic you know, employment and legals and financial models and pitch decks and all the rest of it. And you, you end up with this really exciting time as you're figuring it all out. I was going to ask about that. You and Graham obviously have these great academic um, and some practical skill sets, but the commercial side of things, building a business plan, getting out there and fundraising, how did you learn some of that and how hard was it to go from your skill set to learning this whole new skill set? Yeah, so uh, huge. I often say to people, I learned more in that first you know, two or three years than I did in probably the previous 10 years as a consultant surgeon. A lot of it is about listening. Mm. So there are all these key perspectives you're from the investor side, and in particular is one that springs to mind, potential customers, the kind of stakeholders in the hospitals uh, that you need to get on board, both for the uh, trials and then as early customers. And you have to be able to listen to all of those, to be able to understand when and an investor is looking at your company, mm. what are they looking at? And whereas we will fall back on, clearly this is something that's you know, clinically hugely useful and important and technologically highly innovative. Yeah. Turns out they're probably not, they're probably not high on the list of things that they're interested in. They're interested in about you know, how big is this opportunity? What's the probability of it, of it succeeding? What are the big risks and the kind of the value inflection points? between myself and Graham is you need to, to develop those kind of common languages between yourself and those, those other people externally in terms of investors and in terms of your customer engagement. And then internally, as you bring in a more diverse team of people and backgrounds into the company. So how big is the team now? Because of course you're quite, you, in terms of a startup world, you're quite mature as a company. And how do you split that team into backend developer people, sales, marketing, et cetera? So we're uh, 30 something people at the moment with a small full-time presence in the, in the US as well as in the UK. And then we have distributors agents that we work with as well. The, the way we've done it is that you hire people into the senior roles who are you know, leaders themselves and can run their teams. And you have to be in this position where you can trust those people you're working with to grow their teams, to deliver on it and be accountable for it. And also to respect the kind of the differences that there are. There are very different personalities and very different kind of world viewpoints that you'll get from a typical software engineer you know, to a salesman who 
uh, is uh, used to selling you know, medical devices in, in hospitals. There is a, a constant thing that you're doing inside the company, which is obviously building the teams, but also ensuring that you have the communications across the teams. So these people understand what else is happening in the company, why it's important to have these other roles, why the company only succeeds if all these different bits of what you're doing, as you say, commercial, finance, regulatory. So are the back-end people saying, well, tech is obviously the most important, marketing and sales doesn't really matter as much? Yeah, so you know, the, the extremes of the arguments, and this is, of course, you know, parody, but, it, but it's that we've built a product that's so great it will just sell itself from the engineer's side and then from the salespeople's side is, you know, don't need the engineers, have got product, leave it to me, I can sell that. So what you're doing is you're putting in place the kind of feedback from the salespeople, from the product specialists who are talking to the customers, um, back to the product team so that they're very much in uh, contact with what's going on. They're getting the positive feedback, they're getting the you know, suggestions for improvements. And that's what really contributes to the really dynamic buzz and excitement that you get in startup and in early stage uh, companies is this ability that actually you're doing new stuff. It's really exciting. We are connected to the customers you're much more closely than you would be if you were a you know, multi-thousand employee company. One of the things we want to talk about was fundraising, which is obviously something that you're not used to as a doctor. How have you managed to tackle fundraising? And do you have any tips for people who might be thinking about doing it themselves? When you're starting up, it's very much talking to the angel investors. uh, And it's a matter of your own credibility that you know what you're talking about. And you're asking people to put in money into your company where the odds, if you look at startups, are not great. So it's about being authentic and, and the um, authenticity is not just about how uh, real what you're doing is, but it's also recognizing the gaps that you have and that will need to be filled because I often look at investor presentations and you know, particularly maybe stereotype, but they're kind of the younger 20 something founders who, you know, pitching it that they've got everything all completely sorted out. They know every bit about what's happening. It's it's always much more about this is the stuff that we're really sure about. And this is why it could be huge. This is the stuff that we need to figure out and we need to get from where we are today. So it's that authenticity about things. Uh, And then the other bit about it is that you understand the perspective that the investors are coming from on it and that a big part of that has to do with your know, familiarity. We're med tech, we're AI, we're cloud. If you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand any of those, they're unlikely to get comfortable with it. One of the things that I found interesting that you mentioned is the thing about younger founders. There's this impression, especially in tech, that all founders are 26 to 30. And of course, you're not in that category. With all due respect, neither am I. Um, So in terms of being a bit older and having more life experience, what do you think that brings to your role as a founder? By way of declaration, I'm now 52. I think I was 47 or 46 or something when um, Sida was was founded. I think some of it is that thing that the older you get, you realize a lot of things that you saw with absolute certainty when you were younger are actually slightly more nuanced and you know, shades of gray around things. Mm. I think that can be an advantage in terms of the practicality of kind of the execution of what you're doing. I think it can come across sometimes as uncertainty about things. One of the things that I want to touch upon is this thing you mentioned about 
selling in the NHS and having an NHS presence. And that, of course, is you know, the elephant in the room in a lot of VC-backed companies because, of course, selling in the NHS is tricky and it, it can be slow as well. So how did you figure out how to sell in the NHS? So obviously we were a spin-out from the NHS. In terms of the actual selling to the NHS, it is somewhat ironic that you know, we are currently finding it easier selling in Germany and the US and Spain and France and Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a kind of a flip side to that, which is that in the NHS, you know, we're, we're, our software is regulated as a medical device. There are these mechanisms around to incentivize adoption of new technologies, but also that if you have something which is cost-effective, so it's improving patient outcomes, and it's ideally doing that reduced cost from what it is at the moment, that actually there are all sorts of mechanisms through NICE and others that can really open the floodgates with it. So it's more patient game with it. It's building up the clinical evidence of what you're doing. Uh, and that comes back into the, you know, the investment picture. All these things are interconnected, which is you're talking about longer timelines for it. But the fact that actually, if you can reach that bit where you've got that, you know, that level one clinical evidence, that actually there's a big floodgate that opens. And mm. there is also a flip side to the NHS, which is often missed, which is that if you are, if something's adopted by the NHS, that is a huge signal in other countries that are rather envious of NICE yeah. with the kind of rigor around it. That if you manage to crack that, it really helps you with other markets. How did the regulatory path of that match with the sales? Like how many years before did you get FDA approval or CE marking? So we got, we got our CE marking actually very quickly because due to an anachronism, which is fortunately being um, addressed in the new medical device regulations coming in, what we were doing, the way we were providing guidance during surgery was actually a class one medical device under the old medical device directive. The FDA of class two product, full technical files, the clinical trial with all of the, all of the evidence of safety and performance from that. Mm. So that's just one bit of it. The other bits of it, which are the data protection information security. For us, GDPR was a really good thing because suddenly overnight in May 2018, you just had this single kind of you know, song sheet that everyone, whether you're in you know, Spain or Scotland, it, it's the same rules. And we can just align our materials communications with GDPR and it's really simplified things with it. GDPR is quite a high bar. So if you're passing, that helps us with, and we're, we're quite advanced going into some, some new markets as well, but also the US, um, it all has that credibility across. So you've got all these different bits going on. And while you're building all the stuff, which is not so sexy externally, but it's the operational support of what you're doing, all the systems that, uh, that work, the monitoring, the failovers, the, all, all those sorts of things uh, with it. We had a period of time from late 2016 through probably until early 2019, where actually the rate limiting step for us was the infrastructure behind what we we're doing, not actually the rate of, of us talking to new customers. You mentioned that you had this uh, small full-time subsidiary in the US. Was that exciting to set up? How has that panned out? So the US is such a huge country. We think of it as being a, a single country and anyone who's done business over there knows that it's, it's not. It's all the individual states and it's a huge geography and all sorts of you know, variations from state to state, but also from hospital system to hospital system. We took a view that getting into the US 
early would be really important in terms of us learning the lessons around those things we're talking about with information security around how to sell around the practicalities of you know, running a cloud software service in the US. So we took that jump very early on, but it's a big country. So to do it properly requires a serious resource to it. And that's the stage that we're at, uh, we're at the moment. I wanted to move away a little bit from talking about work and to talk, go back to your own journey because I've also left medicine and it's a scary thing to do. It's, it's a, it feels quite brave once you've done it. I wanted to touch a little bit about the personal risk because medicine is a very safe and stable, secure career and to leave it when you could dedicate your whole life to it is such a big thing because there's, of course, personal career, financial risks. How did you tackle that? It's extraordinary the different views of people in the NHS and outside the NHS. I felt at the time that I was taking a really big personal risk with this. Yeah, I, I could see what I was doing each day in the operating room with what was our research set up then. And I knew this, this was something that was really big. And that if I didn't do it, I would always regret it. So the decision to do it was, you know, what the feeling inside that this is the right thing to do was very strong. But you're right, a consultant surgeon had a job for life. You have a nice pension. You've got your kind of your status and the things that you do and the people around you are looking at you and going, why on earth would you go and do that? And then at the same time as getting from the early investors and others, yeah, we want to see some skin in the game. We want to see you taking some personal risk. Yeah. As a surgeon, if the company failed, I would get another job. And actually, you see these younger founders who don't have that safety net of a profession to go back to. Mm. I give a very strong recommendation when I'm talking to medical founders that if you believe in what you're doing, you either need to get somebody who can do this absolutely full time, who shares your vision with it or make the jump yourself. And you cannot in my experience, dabble and go, I'm going to do this venture, you know, one, two days a week and the other time keep my nice, safe position that I've got. Yeah, I, I would agree. I want to talk a tiny bit about why I invested in Sida. Sida was one of my first two investments alongside Context Flow in Vienna. And I was particularly drawn to the technology and the use case here because given my own experience in radiology, I've been involved in lots of interventional radiology procedures at where you're using image-guided keyhole techniques to do these complex procedures. And I know it can be really tricky. And the idea of having this satellite navigation where you're using the patient's own anatomy to guide what you're doing, I thought was a real game changer. And the SIDAR technology, in my view, reduces the time for these tricky procedures. It makes things more accurate, so improving patient outcomes. And importantly, reducing the dose of radiation to the patient and also to the staff who are around in the intervention room at the time. So I thought it was a win all around. So patient outcomes are improved, clinical workflows are improved. And when we invested at Shisaida, we were well past the proof of concept stage and they were selling in different geographies, had their regulatory approval. So I thought this was a no-brainer to get involved. And I also heard from several end users who were using this in London, vascular surgeons who really liked the product and said in the future, they wished that all procedures were done like this. And from the radiology point of view, I could see the application to other sectors, such as you know, when are we going to get SIDAR for interventional oncology, for example. And then the most important thing, of course, is the team. I think that Tom you know, is a great founder. He's eloquent and passionate about his mission. And I think that the grit and resilience that you've had, as you say, to go from 2012 to now to keep going with this is really incredible. The team have a real sense of community spirit and camaraderie, which I could really sense when I went to visit. 
one of the things that I was, what was not so impressed about was a lack of women. And I wanted to talk about that with you because in the deep tech community, there are not that many women who have the, the AI machine learning PhD level background. How do you try and think about diversity at CIDA and when it is a, it, quite a male dominated space? Yeah, no, we're acutely aware of it. So we're, I think, so we have, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I think only one, one woman in our tech team at the moment. We've had we're two younger women who are doing computer science or biomedical engineering come and do uh, summer internships with us. Mm. But there is this really big skew, as you said, in the, and it seems to be changing kind of demographically. So the people that we have are mostly in their, you know, late 20s, 30s, 40s, and there's an overwhelming male bias. We address it both from the way that we're advertising and reaching out. It's a problem in the field that we're at because for historic reasons, in terms of the graduates from those courses having a very big male bias, it's one that we are aware of and we are making big efforts to change. Our chairman was an absolute storm leading the push with the FTSE 100 um, companies to increase the female representation on the on board's directors with great success. And he's a real advocate for us. But yeah, it's a difficult problem. And it, to a certain extent, depends on this younger generation and where you are seeing more women in the STEM subjects coming through on things. Okay, so just to wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you have any advice that you can share with people who are one, thinking of leaving medicine and two, thinking of then going on to start their own company. Yeah, so think of leaving medicine, it's a really big thing. And, but if you feel that you, that it's the right thing for you and you can make more impact with it, then, then do it and do it with both feet. Just my experience from those two years, 2012, 2013, trying to mix the two things, you end up getting the worst of both worlds with it. The bit about founding the uh, company is that same thing about jumping with both feet and it is being open-minded, it's listening, but above all, it's perseverance. This stuff is super difficult. You have problems, seemingly impassable obstacles that rise up in front of you all of the time, and you have to figure out your way around it. The thing that I think was the biggest eye-opener for me is this kind of ecosystem around the startup world of you know, other founders, other investors, and there are all sorts of people who are really keen to help you out. So if you've got problems, if you're faced with something that you don't know, you know, phone up your investors, phone up you know, the network of friends. Everyone will have, or someone there will have a lead that can help you with it. And in some ways, it's quite a lot like medicine. People will share information because you all believe in the, the longer term benefit of what you're doing. And people understand the difficulties that you've got enough on your plate. You don't need to be reinventing the wheel with it. So I, I think that would be my thing is that if you're going to do it, jump with both feet and then be prepared for some tough times along the way and stick with it. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Health Tech VC. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, head to the show notes to follow me and Krista Galli Ventures on social media to keep up with the latest content in health tech and investing.